In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again today. Help us to open our minds and our hearts and help us to kind of go back in a way uh, to the 17th and 18th century to understand the ramifications of all of the things that are going on and how the church has still survived regardless of the attacks from all sides. So we ask your blessing in our efforts and we give you praise and thanksgiving and all things in Jesus' name. Last week we studied the Council of Trent and the many good things that came from that. The week before we talked about the French, uh, the Protestant Reformation which was a major, major change in thinking of the people and general society of that time period. As if you recall, for a thousand years, the society had looked to the church for guidance and direction, and the church became almost more of a temporal ruler than a spiritual ruler. But this was necessary because there wasn't anyone else. However, with the changes that occurred immediately after the event of Martin Luther and his 95 Theses, which sort of opened the door to sort of free thinking and allowing people to challenge yeah, at least in their thoughts, if not physically, uh, the teachings of the church. But the church came along and with the Council of Trent counterbalanced much of the harm that the Protestant Reformation did to society in general. But it didn't eliminate the whole idea of free thinking. It didn't eliminate uh, people taking matters into their own hands in all regards. In fact, in many ways, people began to think that the church was tightening up too much, even though the things that came from the Council of Trent were needed, were well regarded, in many ways, but you know, you can't make society all like the same thing at the same time. And this is very much a way of demonstrating that. <clears throat> Regardless of what the church seemed to do, it could not make everybody happy. Uh, now, today we're going to talk about the Age of Enlightenment. You might say, well, why do we need to know that? Well, part of it is general history that affected the entire world. But it also affected the church in many ways that the church was not really prepared to face or to handle. And so there are a number of issues that 
make up the enlightenment. Well, what do we mean by enlightenment? Well, you might say that it sort of began with the printing press and the printing of all kinds of documentation and information that could quickly be disseminated. It also made education a lot easier to handle on a group basis than it did before. Education, for the most part, was handled on a one-on-one -on -one basis or one in small groups, very small groups. But now with the availability of uh, the printing press and the ability to duplicate books much, much faster than the hand method before that, education became much uh, more easily uh, disseminated and obtainable. Along with that, it got people into thinking for themselves, which they weren't accustomed to doing. Beforehand, an agrarian society kind of looked to the church and did what they were told and kept their mouths shut. Uh, in fact, quite often that was the way the nuns taught us when I was in school way back, you know. Uh, but uh, actually, one has nothing to do with the other. Uh, so the turmoil, and that is the only word I can really use to describe what was going on in the 17th through the early part of the 19th century. The turmoil that developed from all of these things coming together about the same time. You had a change of society because of education. You had a change in society because of the new regulations coming from the church. You had a change in society from very many different points of view, and all of these seem to come together around the same time. <clears throat> to make matters worse, we then had the French Revolution, and oy vey, as the Jewish people would say, uh, what, how can we explain that? And I'll get to that uh, a little later. But there are a number of things that happened during this period that we may have never heard of before, but they were major incidents that tried to attack the church and break it down. You had one of the things that was most important was that for many years, even prior to this period, the church was in uh, sort of a joint arrangement with many of the nobility, particularly the Holy Roman Empire and the French Empire. The French were supportive of the church in many ways, but not for the reasons of uh, spirituality. They were in league with the church because they were trying, always seemed to be trying, to get control of the church. And that was one of the reasons 
for the Avignon uh, schism back in the 14th century. It was because there was a French pope on the throne of Peter, and the French king were, was very friendly and supportive of him, obviously, and persuaded him to come to Avignon, uh, and that's what he did because Rome was having many other kinds of uh, social problems. And so the whole idea of the papacy moved to Avignon for about 70 years, creating all kinds of, of problems. But the effect on France was very positive, very helpful. And that kind of relationship existed all the way up onto, into the 17th and 18th century. France tried to uh, get control of the papacy so that it could then uh, appoint its own bishops and make other rules that were uh, helpful and positive for the French people, but more importantly for the French king. Louis XIV is one of those that really created all kinds of problems. He was very helpful on one end, but very, um, well, uh, it's, it's almost difficult to explain in polite language uh, how he affected others. Let's let us go with that. But before we get into the French Revolution, there are a couple uh, of movements that were important enough for me to really get into them in depth. And I would like to just give you a brief summary of what these are. Because many of the people felt that the church was uh, trying too hard to control their lives, after the Protestant Reformation started, you mean, I think I told you that uh, it started with Martin Luther in 1517, but there was no real end to it. It sort of phased out towards the end of the uh, 17th century, but there was really no end to the Protestant Reformation. In fact, we are still, even today, seeing some of the effects in process. But one of the things is that people began to question the spirituality that was being taught by the church, particularly the Trinity and the benefits of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And one of these was called deism. Uh, you might say, well, why should we know that? Well, if you'll listen in a few minutes, uh, I think you'll see the connection between uh, this particular movement, along with some others, uh, that affected the church. Deism, a philosophy popular especially during the Enlightenment, age, and exemplified by thinkers such as Voltaire, John Tolan, and Matthew Tyndall. 
Tyndall, by the way, is the name of a very prominent uh, Protestant publishing company right today. The general deist view is that God does exist and in the beginning created the world and determined the laws according to which uh, the world works. But just as one winds a watch only to let the watch run according to its own laws without further bother, so God created the world and humankind to operate according to their own laws without any further divine interference. This was the people who uh, professed to be deists believed. With such a philosophy, deists often disputed uh, the credibility of the events recounted in the Bible. Likewise, they attacked the authoritative position in society of church rulers and argued for legal impartiality regarding religious opinions. <clears throat> they argued for legal impartiality. Remember the church at one time was so tight on what people had to believe that they could uh, imprison people for going against them. And so the deists are saying, well, yeah, there was a God, but after he created the world, you know, he sprinkled it with people and then said, okay, boys and girls, you're on your own. You know, that was their kind of thinking. I'll just repeat part of this here. With such a philosophy, deists often disputed the credibility of the events recounted in the Bible. Likewise, they attacked the authority, authoritative position in society of church leaders and argued for legal impartiality regarding religious opinions. It still serves today, because it still exists today, as a rationale for repudiating all of the definite religious obligations involved in the revealed religions of Judaism or Christianity without appearing to surrender a belief in a personal God and general ethical uh, obligations. So what it's saying here is uh, Deus still exists today and they still believe a God but that's about as far as it goes. No, it is not a formal religion. It is a form of belief among many people. Okay. The struggle between the new and the old faith lasted longer and was most bitter in France. Voltaire, in the name of the Enlightenment, declared war on the church, on its dogmas, its ethics, its traditions, and its clergy. Nothing escaped his savage attacks. The Trinity, the chastity of Mary, the presence of the body and blood of Christ in the Mass. To him, the history of the Church was nothing but sanguinary complications of idiotic wrangling leading to war and mass murder. His Dictionnaire Philosique, uh, published in 1764, was burned by the Church and in most other countries, such as Geneva 
the Netherlands. Uh, in France, even though Voltaire was French, uh, and in the Holy See. So deism was a movement that developed in this particular time because it allowed people to think for themselves and someone, some of them went way off uh, the beaten path uh, because it was easier for them than it was to be attentive uh, and mind what the church was trying to teach them. In a way, yes, that's a very good point. She said uh, many of our founding fathers here in the United States were uh, deists. And remember, in this time period here, the 17th century, was when the United States was developed. And it, was, it had a big influence on the people of the entire world because and we'll get into that a little later, but because of the American Revolution, it opened the doors to thinking uh, in other countries. Jansenism was another movement that attacked the church directly. Jansenism originated with Cornelius Jansen, the Bishop of Ips in Belgium and a professor at Louvain University. He appealed to the authority of St. Augustine in expounding theories on the nature of original sin, human freedom, and the nature and efficacy of God's grace. At the root of his uh, system of beliefs was a belief in the radical corruption of human nature. Does that sound a little familiar? A belief in the radical corruption of human nature, which to the authorities smacks suspiciously of Lutheranism and Calvinism. I think a couple of weeks ago uh, I told you that Calvin had, I mean that Luther had a number of hang-ups and one of them was that he felt that mankind without God was no good whatsoever, regardless of what he did. Uh, he went way to extremes. Okay? And Jansenism picked up some of that and dressed it off a little, uh, presented it in a different way, but pretty much the same thing. Okay? At the root of the system, was a belief in the radical corruption of human nature, which to the authorities smacked suspiciously of Lutheranism and Calvinism. After a decade of violent debate in France, his whole theology was examined by a papal commission at the request of the French bishops, reduced to five affair, uh, succinct propositions and condemned by Pope Innocent X in 1653. But this did not put an end to the affair. His followers, led by Antoine Arnaud, refused to give in. Rather, they trumped up a clever distinction between fact and law to savage their orthodoxy. They continued to promote the teachings of Jansen 
by asserting that such teachings did not fall under the purview of the church's infallibility. This was condemned by the French Assembly of the clergy in 1654, and yet they persisted. The most valuable convert, their most valuable convert, I should say, was a brilliant mathematician inventor, Blaise Pascal, who, after joining their ranks, penned in their defense his masterpiece of sire, the Provincial Letters, a devastating attack on their chief enemies, the Jesuits. The Jesuits, on the other hand, did not give in so easily. They did not subscribe to so pessimistic view of the effects of original sin. They held that it merely deprived man of the supernatural gifts bestowed on mankind before sin, and now leaving him in the condition of nature, in possession of the powers and disabilities of nature. Remember, I think I told you the little story about Catherine Graham, who was born into an extremely, extremely wealthy family and had all kinds of subservience. Well, look at that at any family that is extremely wealthy and the children were brought up <clears throat> under those conditions. And then the parents do something illegal or stupid or whatever and lose everything. And so the children, as well as the parents, have to start all over. And their children, etc., have to start from nothing, you might say. That is kind of a, an analogy of what original sin is all about. We are not guilty of Adam and Eve's sin, but we are subjected to the effects of it, the long-ranging effects of it. God planted Adam and Eve, and this is an analogy again of the start of human nature. God planted Adam and Eve in the garden and provided everything for him. And God could walk and talk and man could walk and talk with God at any time because mankind up to the point of sin was perfect. And therefore God and mankind could live together. But once sin came into the picture through free will, mankind and God were separated because God cannot live with a sinful mankind. Don't you think people are like that today? You, you bet, yes. Uh, but mankind didn't totally, for, I mean, God didn't totally forget mankind. Yeah. And that was shown by the fact that he made clothes for them and set them off uh, and protected them up to a point. But, <clears throat> and that of course is an analogy again of what mankind and God's relationship started out and was and allowed us to come back through the teachings of Judaism and then the life, death, resurrection and teachings of Christ and the church. Any questions on that subject of original sin? 
because it became a major factor in the thinking of this time period. Without faith, there is no hope for us. Yes. But I mean, the Jansons, what, what did they believe? I mean, they had no faith then? Uh, very selective faith. It's something that they wanted to rule on their own. They didn't want the church to tell them what faith was all about. They felt they could develop that on their own. But they never did. It, uh, gradually. And, and, and I'll get to that in a minute here. Finally, the Jansenists were ordered by King Louis XIV and Pope Alexander VII. See, again, Louis XIV is in there. And Pope Alexander VII to sign a statement renouncing the errors of the Jansenists. Under extreme pressure, they resorted to another stratagem. That is, the Jansenists resorted to another stratagem. The position of respectful silence, meaning that they, while refusing to accept papal infallibility as a question of fact, they promised to remain a respectful silence regarding the authority of the Pope. So they're going to dispute the idea of the Pope, but they weren't going to talk about it. A new Pope. Clement IX arranged a compromise whereby the Jansenist bishops signed an agreement with, with certain reservations of their own. The movement slowly died out with a few exceptions of the Dutch Jansenists. So you have two major movements here that uh, affected the church greatly in this time period. Even though the church tried to correct many of the errors and things of the past through the Council of Trent, like I said before, you're not going to get everybody to agree to something in the same way at the same time. If you don't think those were bad enough, here's a third one. Gallicanism. The name Gallicanism is to imply that this came from Gaul, which was the earlier name prior to France. This was another movement that greatly agitated the church during the 17th and 18th century. Gallicans were opposed to the Roman papal centralization and wanted to restrict the scope of papal interventions in the affairs of the national churches. In other words, this was called regale, and it was a way that the monarchs of France wanted to control the papacy so that they could appoint the bishops that were favorable to the French and the French way of thinking, particularly the monarch's way of thinking. On the theological level, they denied the personal and separate infallibility of the Pope. 
they held that infallibility belonged only to the whole church and therefore could be expressed either through the general councils or through papal decisions if these were ratified by the assent of the universal order of bishops. In other words, they wanted the, to put all of the rules, regulations, and the dogmas of the church in the hands of the council of bishops who were then controlled pretty much by the French monarchs. Gallicanism received its name from the French church, but it was by no means restricted to France. In part, it reflects a general trend of European governments to support the church and make it a department of the state. You get the movement here? As it was in England and the Lutheran churches in Germany and Scandinavia or the Catholic church in the Habsburgs or Bourbon dominions. In the latter part of the 17th century, Louis XIV nearly led the French church into schism in his efforts to dominate the church. Because of power, prestige, and acceptance by people for whom he did much to improve living conditions, his aim was to govern all Europe by restoring the Holy Roman Empire with himself as emperor. Okay. The Pope, Innocent XI, would not be intimidated by the awesome power of the king. He dispatched a brief a brief condemning the king's action and entreating him to forego the rights of regale. At first, the king tried to evade the issue, but when the pope insisted and even threatened Louis with spiritual sanctions, which really was excommunication, uh, the king finally resorted to a time-honored custom. He rallied the clergy to his side and hurled his defiance at the Pope. This back-and-forth rivalry between Pope and King went on for nearly two centuries in France. Through the time of the French Revolution, which made matters worse, but was finally brought to compromise, uh, or close to a compromise, close, uh, by the First Vatican II in 1858. So it went all the way to almost the end of the 19th century. Now, any questions on any of that? Yes, Jim. In a way, but they're being a little more discreet with it. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes, very much so. Yeah. And the Pope is trying to kind of smooth in, into changing their minds. Um, I don't think it's come quite to that yet. Yeah. But you're right. Uh, a good uh, comparison. Yes, Gene? Yeah. 
Yes. Yes. Jansen is. Yeah. Yeah. The the monarchs of France, Louis the Fourteenth. Fifteenth uh, and sixteenth, really. Uh, of course, you got Napoleon in there too, a little bit, uh, and I'll get to that in a few minutes. But they were trying to manipulate the church into taking, uh, becoming second fiddle, so to speak, um, so that they could control who was put in charge of the various dioceses. And, of course, they wanted only those who were favorable to this French court. Yeah. Uh, France was always a thorn in the side, not only of the church, but its own people in many ways. Yes, Dick? So what was Spain and the Netherlands and the other countries doing while France was trying to control the Vatican? Uh, it, it had its own problems, but not quite as many. Uh, it was trying desperately to deal with the effects of uh, the Protestant Reformation and causing that to kind of settle down. See, but uh, England had its own problems by Henry VIII booting out the control of the church altogether. Um, so... Uh, the church was fighting everybody. Yeah, that's right. Well, it was defending itself when everybody else was fighting against the church. Yeah. Uh, so that is the whole purpose here of, of, you know, bringing that into this particular course. In church history, uh, the church was often, often the uh, defending. Side of society, trying to defend itself, uh, and at the same time trying to develop uh, a connection with the people to improve their spirituality. Um, during the thousand years that they were the only authority, uh, the idea of spirituality became less important because there was no way to enforce it. Yes. Well, don't you think that's a lot this way today? Uh, a lot of people are against some of us people that go to church. Well, yes, I don't think society changes much from one generation to the next. Yeah. Now, let's talk about the French Revolution. Oh, oh, they... Where do, where do you begin? The French Revolution was not like any other revolution. The American Revolution was, its prime principle was to separate itself from the ownership and the rule of England. So it was country against country. In many other uh, revolutions, that was pretty much it. 
you know, was one country against another. The French Revolution was not that way. It was the people against the government, particularly the royalty. We've mentioned Louis XIV several times. He started out as a very good monarch, helping the people, but he got carried away, uh, particularly with expenses, and he spent lavishly on himself and on his family. One of the uh, chief expenses was the Palace of Versailles. How many of you have been to Versailles? And can you imagine the cost? Uh, it would be impossible to build something like that today. Uh, partly because of the artistry necessary, uh, but the expense. And of course, why would you need anything like that today? But uh, if you look even at your handout there, I think there's a picture of him uh, in one of the, uh, maybe it was a, one of the previous handouts. Anyways, uh, nevertheless, makes no difference. Uh, Louis the Fourteenth nearly bankrupt the whole country of France through his extravagance, uh, and the people rose up against it. They were, I think, uh, encouraged by the American Revolution, which happened just a few years before. American Revolution being in 1776, uh, the French Revolution being in 1789. Uh, it was people of the lower classes against the nobility, which finally brought Louis XIV down and drove him out. Okay. But they had nothing really to replace him. There wasn't anyone that was respected well enough to step into his place, but they tried. So you had a minor republic, more of anarchy than anything else. There was a great deal of destruction, um, how many of you read uh, The Tale of Two Cities? Okay. Can you name the two cities? You mean you read the whole book and you didn't know what the two cities were? Huh? No. No. Gene said Paris and London. Well, Paris, obviously. No, the whole story is based on Paris of the rich and Paris of the poor. Two cities, entirely different, because they were so far apart in their class. So far apart in their class. So that was it. The poor rose up against the wealthy, and chaos really reigned for a number of years. It became anarchy, that is, ruled by mob people. Nevertheless, it did settle down. You did have a few people that were able to uh, 
get things moving at least forward. Uh, one of those, of course, was Napoleon Bonaparte, who came to prominence in 1804. But, you know, for 15 or more years, uh, you had anarchy. But Napoleon, who was not a Frenchman, by the way, I mean, of you didn't know that. He was an Italian, born in Corsica. Yes. But he was a very prominent officer in the French army and rose to great prominence through his uh, intelligence, his strategy, uh, you know, personality, etc., etc. But the people didn't like him either after a while. So he only lasted a short time and got banished over to the island of Alba. Uh, then they brought back in Louis the Sixteenth, I think it was. Uh, I, I, the history is so jumbled up at this particular time that unless I actually read it and you know do a little summary like I did with these others, but. French Revolution is pretty hard to do a summary because it goes on and on and on. And it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, but you had Napoleon serve two different times, interspersed with uh, Louis XVIII, who also served two different times. And then they both were kicked out by the people, and it finally became a republic, which it still is. Uh, but their attack not only uh, was against the royalty, but it was also against the church. And it took a number of years to settle down. One of the prime uh, complaints and gripes was the whole idea of the church um, being ruled from Rome, they didn't like that. They didn't like the infallibility of the Pope, as the Jansons uh, also didn't like. And there were another, uh, a number of other issues. We always think of France and Spain as being a, a very religious, particularly uh, Catholic country. Well, that is not the case, particularly France. Um, <coughs> Most of this went on and on uh, with various people trying to straighten it out and not being very successful all the way up. And it was finally kind of closed out in a quiet way through Vatican I, the Vatican Council of uh, I in 1858. So it rained all the way from that time period, from 1789 to 1858. Uh, the people were in turmoil, constantly. But the church was always there right with it. So you have a number of things that constantly affected both sides. Any questions? Well, can you see 
the church trying to survive. Uh, you have a number of problems within the church itself by a number of popes that were not strong enough to stand up to some of them. And then you had some others that were overly strong and tried to arm wrestle everybody else. So you had that constant thing, but nevertheless, the church did survive. And that's the whole point of understanding church history, that the church did uh, survive and will continue to survive, even into today's problems. Yes, ma'am. Uh, well, the United States got involved a little bit, as you know, uh, through the efforts of Benjamin Franklin. Franklin was over there, and they, of course they treated him royally. They just thought he was the greatest, and uh, he did a lot of good. He did also a lot of harm um, for both sides. Uh, but he didn't really help the people. He enjoyed uh, the luxuries that were provided, but he didn't really help either side very much. Uh, they didn't, well, yes, in a way they set up a constitution that was somewhat based on the same principles of our constitution, um, but didn't have all of the positives that ours does. But our constitution was based on Christian principles, but more along the lines of the Jansenism uh, there, uh, particularly in the separation of church and state. But I think that in itself is a good thing. Because, as, as I've said many times before, God does not want to, be, to have us forced into loving him. God wants us to know him and to love him and serve him on a voluntary basis. And we can only do that by developing a personal relationship with Christ and getting to know him through prayer not through coercion, not through laws, uh, not by having any government tell us what to do or what not to do. God wants us really to love him through understanding his ways and following his ways. An extremely important yet simple concept. And yet, unfortunately, Many people still do not want to accept it. Do not want. I, I know somebody that was invited to uh, this particular course, but this person said, no, thank you. They didn't want to get involved. Uh, they didn't want to learn all that stuff. Quote, quote unquote. <laughs> Did not want to learn all that stuff. Like the main thing you say, it will only confuse you. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes, Mike. How was the uh, church dealing, did they have any issues with the uh, Italian or Italy? 
there any conflict there? Very little. Very little. Uh, see, Italy, up until uh, the time of Mussolini, Italy was not a united country as it is today. You had the East um, <clears throat> ruled it for a long time. You had France ruled it for a long time. In fact, <clears throat> Bonaparte's brother uh, was the king of France, a uh, uh, king of Italy, uh, for quite a while. Built a magnificent palace there in Caserta. Um, again, you know, taking, <laughs> even though they condemned Louis the Fourteenth for that, Napoleon uh, did the same thing. And his brother did the same thing by establishing uh, extremely expensive places to live. Um, but no, Italy was not near as uh, combative with the church. I think partly because the same thing happened today. Partly because the church uh, was so beneficial to Italy and always had them. Uh, and even, even today, there, the compromise that was made by the Lateran Treaty uh, in uh, 1929 with Mussolini and Pope Pius XI, uh, which did away with all the papal states, but gave the Vatican uh, protection as an independent country within the city, or within the city of Rome. Uh, and that has helped quiet things down. Vatican I did a great deal to kind of settle a lot of this down. And people then began to accept the Protestant Reformation as sort of the norm, the separation of church and state, the fact that people were allowed to uh, profess whatever religion they wanted to or professed no religion at all, was now becoming the accepted norm <coughs> of most countries. You still have a number of countries in Europe, though, that have what they call national churches, such as England and the church, uh, the Anglican church, is considered the Church of England. Uh, <clears throat> that was a very normal thing. And to some degree, it still is. The French people claim the Catholic Church as their national church. And they support it in many ways today without all of the problems of the past. Betty, did you have a question there? Some of them may 
Well, yes, I can't dispute that. Uh, as Betty said, many of the hierarchy in the church in America do live rather well. Um, you know, there's no way to, to dispute that. Uh, we still have to look at the fact uh, that God is the church, or the church is an extension of Christ himself. Uh, and when people put uh, wealth and position and prestige before God, then they are wrong and will be held accountable. Uh, that doesn't mean that the, the church should all be or the, the hierarchy, the priesthood should all be beggars. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they should not flaunt wealth either. Yes, Julie? Can you touch a little bit on Vatican I? Vatican I was held in 1859, obviously, in the Vatican. Its primary conclusion, it, it searched many things. Its primary conclusion was to settle the idea of infallibility. As I mentioned before, uh, the Jansenists and the Gala, 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 whatever, Gallicanists, yeah, uh, both found that to be a thorn in the side of their thinking. Uh, Vatican II finally put that to rest by saying that the Pope was not infallible in everything, but only in matters of faith and morals. And that's the way it was always intended to be seen. You know, if he said today was September uh, the 42nd or something, people thought he would, would have to be correct. Because he said it, and he was infallible. That's not true, and never was. The Pope is infallible only in matters of faith and morals, and in the last 200 years, that has only been used twice, and both of them regarding the Virgin Mary. The first one was right after uh, Vatican I, by the apparition of Mary at Lourdes, where she was declared uh, the Immaculate Conception. That was another facet of Vatican I, uh, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. Do you all understand what the Immaculate Conception is? Any questions regarding that? The idea that Mary was born uh, in a special dispensation from God, from all sin, from original sin and all sin after that, because she was to be the mother of God. Her son, uh, her son Jesus, was God. And God, as I said before many times, cannot live 
with or inside uh, sinful mankind. And so something unusual had to happen. And as we know, uh, Mary was born without sin and kept totally sinless for her entire life. She was also kept as a virgin through her entire life. My sister, who was a nurse, said to me, well, what about the vaginal birth of Christ? I said, well, no one was there to witness it, but my guess is that there was not a vaginal birth, but a miraculous birth. He was inside for nine months and then outside, but not in the normal way. Okay? And we have to leave it at that because there's no way to know or dispute it. We'll learn sometime when we get to heaven. Okay. But the whole idea of the Immaculate Conception has been uh, contested in many, many ways. And it was part of the Jansenist uh, problems. And that was settled also in Vatican I. Yeah, the uh, assumption, no, the, yes, I'm sorry, I have to get my timing mixed up. Yes, the first time that the infallibility was used within the past 200 years was to declare the Immaculate Conception. The second time was in 1950, 1950, I think it was, when the, uh, dogma of the assumption of Mary. And that is sort of the opposite end of the Immaculate Conception. The assumption is that Mary did not die. Mary was assumed into heaven, body, and soul. All right. The reason being, of course, is that death is an indication of the effects of original sin. The effects, the consequences, is we die. All right? Mary, who was uh, absolved of original sin, did not die. She was assumed into heaven at the end of her lifetime. The uh, assumption Assumption, yes. Any other questions? I too early to leave. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, that yes. Uh, by the way, is the timeline, was that helpful or interesting to you? Because I wanted you to see that there was a heck of a lot more went on than we had time to talk about here. Okay. Uh, yes, but the gentleman just asked about the number of orders. The monastic system began way back in the 4th century. 
even before the Edict of Milan. But it was sort of haphazard. The whole idea of hermits existed long before Christ. And the idea of hermits wanting to spend time by themselves in prayer, contemplating and communing with God through prayer. It developed in a community arrangement whereby a leader would develop uh, a congregation uh, or a group of men who would live together under a common rule. St. Benedict was the one who developed the most uh, commonly used rule today. Many of the orders uh, take their lead from St. Benedict of the 4th century uh, who established the magnificent monastery at Monte Cassino. Anybody who have been to Monte Cassino? Yeah. It is a magnificent uh, monastery, but the one that is there today is about the third third one. Yes. Uh, is the third monastery. The previous uh, one was destroyed uh, by the uh, Allied forces in the Second World War because the Germans had fortified themselves in the monastery, which is the top of a hill leading from uh, Naples up to Rome. And therefore they fortified themselves as the Allied forces re, uh, advanced uh, against Germany by first uh, landing in uh, Salerno and then Sorrento and moving north. As they moved north against the road from Naples to Rome, uh, the Germans uh, could uh, see them and try to hold them off from the hilltop where the, casino, where the monastery was. We lost a lot of lives there. Yes, we did. Um, the monastery that is there today is a magnificent place. We've been there. Yeah. Uh, the other ideas of the orders, particularly the Jesuit orders. The Jesuits were founded by St. Ignatius of Loyola and a group of his friends who came from the University of Paris at the Sorbonne and developed uh, an order that centered around higher education. They became very influential and very helpful to the Pope, uh, but because of the many of the problems between the Popes and the uh, monarchs of the various countries, uh, the Jesuits were put down and then reunited and then put down and so forth, and back and forth, back and forth. Today we have a Pope that is a former Jesuit. Okay. Um, well, he's all right. Still a Jesuit, but of course now he serves the entire country, not just uh, his own order. All right. You have a number of orders like that, and in uh, the women's um, case, there were a number of convents 
that were developed, particularly in the Carmelite order. St. Teresa of Avila, a very important uh, woman, very gutsy woman. If you want to read a good uh, biography, I recommend uh, the biography. I forget the specific name of it, but The Life of Teresa of Avila is excellent um, and very interesting. So you have a number of orders uh, and they all have their own purpose primarily to live in a community life uh, serving various purposes such as uh, the sisters of charity that came from um, Mother Teresa serves the very poor of the poorest uh, those particularly in India, but now have advanced to almost every country in the world. We have a number of other orders that have been extremely helpful, uh, but they were sort of the anchors of the Catholic Church during these troubled times. And they developed during these troubled times, or they expanded and it multiplied in many, many ways. Remember, God has promised that whenever evil is present, graces, his graces are going to be even more present. And this is an example of that. Uh, the evil that came from the personal desires of many people uh, during this Enlightenment age and the Protestant Reformation period were offset by the number of increases in the uh, various monasteries and convents. Well, I think the Catholics help more. Me, I noticed that we take care of the poor making sandwiches. We have a home for the unwed mothers. Yes, uh, we've done a great deal of that, but you can't deny that uh, other orders have done the same thing. Yeah. And the Jewish people themselves have done a number of those good things. That's one thing I will never do in all of the years I've been teaching is put down uh, another faith. Well, no, that, no, I won't do either. Uh, because I feel that even though my heart is always and will always be in the Catholic faith, I figure that any other faith is better than none. Yeah. Okay. So I'd rather have a person try into another, be in another faith than not in any. Yes, Mike? The, uh, in regards to the missions in the Americas, it was mainly Spain, the Spanish, because they were the ones who were down there. But were there specific orders that because they were Spanish, not French. How that Most of those orders were uh, actually the uh, Franciscans. Yes, most of them were the Franciscans, and that's why you had so many Catholic names of those missions which became cities. You know, San Francisco, Santa Barbara, San Diego, all of those. Um, 
are named after uh, saints, and they were Spanish missions to begin with. Yeah. Uh, so most of, most of the missionaries at that time in that region were Spanish. Uh, and then you had, conversely, the French were in New England and North America, right across uh, in that area. Yes. Yes, sir. Do you believe the Orthodox Church is that apostolic succession? Apostolic? apostolic? Yeah, succession. No. Do you that? They do not accept that. The Apost Catholic Church does not accept that. What did you say? What's that? The Catholic Church does not accept the fact that they have no identity. <coughs> Well, I don't think the Catholic Church really has ruled on what other religions have done or believe in. Um, obviously, the Catholic Church is an apostolic church, meaning that it stems from the time of the apostles. And the Orthodox Church believe they also stem from that. Well, they may believe that, and, you know, God bless them if they do. But we don't always accept that because if they did then they would look to Peter mm -hmm. or the Pope as the head of the church maybe, maybe. <laughs> they should maybe. but they, they don't yeah yes ma'am because they are a secret organization and the church does not allow or accept the fact of any secret organization. The question was, what does the church have against Freemasonry? Uh, Freemasons are, or at least were originally, you know, they're not a big factor today, but at one time they were a very aggressive movement against the Catholic Church. And the church has put them down because they are a secret society. Yes, sir? Knights of Columbus are a secret society that we invite the priests in. Well, they're not secret in the same way. No. No, no, no. No, that's entirely different kind of thing. Yes, Jim? Yeah, you mentioned in here part of the Enlightenment was the development of science. And you mentioned here that Pope Pius kind of rallied against a lot of the idea of science only. Yes, yes. Uh, he was afraid. Yes, that's on your timeline there. The, the Vatican at one time was against many of the sciences. Uh, I could have added that too because one of the great movements at the tail end of the Enlightenment uh, was the expansion of science, particularly with the industrial revolution getting in there, uh, the advancement of uh, the railroad, for example, and communication uh, through Morse code, uh, and so many other new things creeping in uh, to our lifestyle. Uh, but sciences at one point in time were sort of uh, looked down upon by the Vatican because they appeared to be uh, taking over uh, much of the thought 
uh, of divinity. I'm sorry. You're a little bit weak on that one. Actually, the church condemned science in Galileo and because it disagreed with the church's interpretation of the... Well, that's right. In the Galileo case uh, and astronomy, you're right. Uh, they didn't agree with Galileo because he was the first, actually he wasn't the first, but he was the first in Italy uh, to question the Pope on his thinking about the church I mean, the Earth being the center of the universe. And Galileo proved that he wasn't. Well, uh, yes, that, that was a, a, a problem there because it says in a couple places in the Old Testament that God made the Earth uh, unmovable. But that's not exactly what is meant. You can't take that exactly as it is meant. I was just went and ran across that the other day in one of the um, Psalms. God made the world to be immovable and uh, something else. But that was not intended to be uh, a statement of physical fact. Yeah. So yeah, at one time, yes. Uh, even the church at one time took the Bible to be exactly, to mean exactly what it says in words. Uh, we do not look at it that way any longer. That was another item of one of the uh, ecumenical councils. Of, in fact, that was one of the councils <clears throat> uh, items out of Vatican II is to say that the right people could do a critical analysis of the Bible. And I don't mean critical in the terms of criticism, but I mean getting down to the exact intended meaning. Uh, <clears throat> so that has changed a, a lot over a period of time. Yes, Justin? Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, where and how did he die? Right. Any other questions? Now, uh, two weeks from today is one of those times when we're going to have time to answer any and all questions, not only of this subject, uh, but whatever you might want. The only thing is I ask that you bring them next week typed out. I've done this before and if they're written out half the time I can't read them. Uh, so please you're allowed to write uh, on any subject but if you bring it next week I'll have time to look it over and we'll then talk about it in the following week. Okay? Next week is always it will be on Vatican II, which is a very interesting subject equal to the one we hopefully had last week on the Council of Trent. 
Vatican II produced 60 major documents. Uh, we'll only be able to get into very brief discussion of each one, uh, and some more than others, because obviously there are some that are more important than others. But it's a very, very interesting subject. Uh, it was, along with the Council of Trent, considered the two most important councils of the entire church. Uh, and it's done really a great deal. But there again, Vatican II in our modern age, 1962 to 65, a lot of people didn't accept that. And a, pop, a lot of people, you know, you have movements totally against it. So, people don't change. Yes, there were a lot of, a lot of confusion, uh, but people don't seem to change. Uh, regardless of, you know, I always said if God himself came down here right in the world, we'd still have people complaining. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Let us, yes ma'am. Oh yes, uh, I gave you a list way back. Uh, there were there have been a total of 21 uh, councils of that level, okay, ecumenical councils of that level. Actually, there was one even before that, uh, which is mentioned uh, quite thoroughly in uh, the Acts of the Apostles in your Bible, chapter 15. But because there is no documentation in existence from that it is not included in the 21 councils of the church. Nicaea, Nicaea was included, right? Nicaea was the first, yes. Yeah. Okay. Alright, let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts. Help us to absorb some of what was talked about today, or all of it, really. But help us to understand that the church is an extension of you yourself. And that, unfortunately, it is manned by human beings who are certainly not divine in any way, shape, or form. But help us then to appreciate what the church really stands for. Help us then to accept the fact that humanity is finite and subject to all kinds of questions and problems. So we thank you for this time together. We ask that you continue to help us strengthen our view of the church and understand its problems. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen.